evening everyone it is the page turners podcast with your host elgin bailey aka big hell this is season four episode six this season we are walking through dr jared a ball's myth and propaganda of black buying power we are currently in chapter three buying power not unrest buying power not protests the myth prevents unrest chapter 3 and I read Bernays understood the true meaning of buying power without the use of the phrase itself Bernays recognized that the role of the majority was to be ruled by an elite few whose power be administered through messaging and in this case specifically targeted with military precise advertising designed to ease the transfer of money upward and outward propaganda he argued should be incorporated into every facet of society from education to politics arts science to social services the more freedom democracy promised the more propaganda was necessary to ensure that freedom be defined along carefully prescribed parameters and he could not have been clearer I want to read that section again for you family because I think that's really important I think that's one of the things that we struggle with is understanding propaganda and this text reads again Propaganda, he argued, should be incorporated into every facet of society, from education to politics, arts, sciences to social service. The more freedom democracy promised, the more propaganda was necessary to assure that freedom be defined along carefully prescribed parameters. And he could not have been clearer. Jeez. The conscious, and I read, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. I I, I gotta read that shit again. The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government which is the true ruling power of our country Bernays insisted there be a commercial influence over education and a continuum of propaganda from boardroom to classroom and back again, leaving no spare moment for independent thought to occur. As he put it, the media by which special Leaders transmit their messages to the public through propaganda include all means by which people today transmit their ideas to one another. There is no means of human communication which may not also be means of deliberate propaganda because propaganda is simply the establishing of reciprocal understanding between an individual and a group. Jeez. 
Bernays saw propaganda as essential to post-World War II establishment of the United States as a permanent and now singular world power. The reciprocity required for this new role meant that all media be bent to the will of society's owners and that the political will of the elite be tailored to every segment of society. The understanding to be reached was and remains that each categorized segment of the country be first created, segmented, and then messaged in ways that will assure the greatest levels of compliance. As concerns pertaining to post-war American capitalism, media need to play another role in helping expand the segmented category of consumer to include nearly everyone. As World War II ended, the infrastructure which had been developed to produce materials for war were rather than demolished, reconfigured to produce civilian goods for which there would need to be people able to buy them. Buying power's original purpose would be called back into play. As the war ended, government officials and policymakers had to figure out what to do with this new industrial capacity. Should the country simply close down the new factories and return to the level of output and unemployment that it had in the 1940s? Or should it convert to the capacity to peacetime use and come up with new sources of demand to replace government arms spending? The key to avoiding mass unemployment was to ensure sufficient aggregate demand. As Robert Nathan, chair of the War Production Board's planning committee, put it, if increased buying power can be got into the hands of consumers who will spend it for goods and services, American industry need not worry about finding markets for it can produce and produce profitably. Jeez. Further, it can be argued that Johnson's secret was in many ways merely taking cues from the highest levels of the federal government, which was openly interested in having an increasing national consumer purchasing power save a struggling economy. President Harry Truman, also in 1954, made clear the importance of buying power. (sighs) We must strengthen our economy at its base. The great base of our economy is consumer buying, which reflects the standards of living of the whole American people. We now need to raise the standards of living rapidly in order to keep up with the fast-growing productive power. To do this, we must increase consumer purchasing power. Then the rest of the economy will automatically grow. In our of economy, wages have to raise as productivity increases. If wages don't go up, we have more goods than people can buy. That is one of the causes of depression. Jeez. This shit is diabolical. When it came to black targeting messaging, the suppression of dissent and the recreation of black people as consumers, an international approach made domestic was tailored further to black audiences, targets, but was no different in substance. Cold War procedures for handling traditional colonies, descended populations, enemy combatants, and terrorist insurgents were applied domestically to black America. 
This was done in part to create Sumers, but also largely out of fears that historical and persistent abuse might sway Black America toward rebellion and specifically toward a global spreading communism. Surveillance, incarceration, infiltration of organizations, character assassination, marketing, and manipulation of popular image all were developed specifically for black audience targets. Truman's concerns about the potential depressive effects of capital over labor at home was more than matched by his concerns of an apparent encroaching international red menace. Part of Truman's response was his signing in 1947, the National Security Act, which led to the development of what? The Central Intelligence Agency to turn its wartime predecessor of the uh, Office of Strategic Services, OSS, into a peacetime operation with the same purpose. (laughs) It would be the CIA, along with other intelligence-gathering agencies in the federal government, who would help fund early communication studies research and have elements of those study conclusions apply broadly throughout commercial marketing, entertainment, media, and academia. And as part of illegal operations targeting Black Americans and others deemed internal threats to national security. Some of those threats, some of those efforts, would later be organized as part of the CIA's Project MKUltra, and those initiated by the Federal Bureau of Investigation under the Counterintelligence Program, Co-Intel Pro. Dumb motherfuckers. Part of a post-war peacetime shift of focus from OSS to CIA was the bipolar concern of managing the international image of the newly emerging singular global superpower while also manipulating internal racial, labor, and class conflicts at home. One approach was to invoke themselves in the development of academic fields of study whose research would be applied toward the development of an entire media and pop culture environment. As it relates to marketing or the civilian commercial application of propaganda and psychological warfare, the newly developing field of communication studies became a well-funded playground for the study of mass public opinion research. Specifically, what emerged during the 1950 was a symbiotic relationship between the academic discipline now called mass communications and the more shadowy entity that Americans called psychological warfare. The British political warfare and the Germans in perhaps the most telling expression of all, worldview warfare, by the early 1950s, agencies such as the Department of Defense, the U.S. Information Agency and the CIA were spending between $7 million and $13 million annually for universities and think tank studies of communication-related social psychology, communication effect studies, anthropological, anthropological studies of foreign communication systems, overseas audiences, Foreign public opinion surveys and simpler pro- similar projects. So these folks was pouring money into all of these agencies as a way of gaining ways of being able to effectively being able to use 
propaganda. Without research, explanation, or even acknowledgement, Black America was to be projected internationally as an image of an expanding and free United States. Domestically, that projected image was of Black America as a newly former consumer market to be discouraged from political struggle and encouraged towards middle class aspirations as part of what Francis Stoner Saunders has described as a cultural cold war. Damn, I need to write that down. Let me, because that's something I want to check out more. Cultural cold war. Francis Stoner Sanders. Listen, and the reason why I want to read more and research that more, because listen to this one more time. Domestically, that projected image of Black America as a newly forming consumer market to be discouraged from political struggle and encouraged towards middle class aspirations. That's something that we still see happening today. It's something that we still have seen today. Hmm. Excuse me. <coughs> My apologies. And I read, this cultural cold war, as Sanders describes, was designed to nudge the intelligentsia of Western Europe away from its lingering fascination with Marxism and communism towards a view more accommodating of the American way. (laughs) The American way was is euphemism for capitalism protected by highly managed public opinion itself betrayed by wide-ranging multi-form and multi-dimensional dissemination of manicured imagery and messaging. This attempt involved the covert federal government development of academia, art, literature, music, journalism, entertainment, and celebrity, all meant to project an overwhelming positive image of the United States and of capitalism abroad through focus primarily on popular white participants there were specific forms targeted directly at black populations an image with the purpose of projecting a falsely harmonious view of the country to the world as one example the problem of race relations in america was much exploited by soviet propaganda and left many europeans uneasy about america's ability to practice the democracy she now claimed to be offering the world it was therefore reasoned that the exporting of african americans to perform in europe would dispel such damaging perceptions an American military government report of 19, March 1947 revealed plans to have top-ranked American Negro vocalists <laughs> give concerts in Germany. Marion Anderson or Dorothy Maynard appearances from German audiences would be of great importance. The promotion of black audiences was to become an urgent priority for American cultural cold warriors. So the image that America wanted to display for the world was that there wasn't any racial issues there. They wanted to have this this, this falsely harmonious view of the country put out there. 
and I read, by 2019, the Department of Defense, CIA, and FBI had been involved directly in the production of thousands of television and films, all designed to present the world with American-centric solutions to international problems and to depict law enforcement in the U.S. military positively. But this is merely the logical conclusion of an industry origin so closely intertwined with state interests as to make any other outcome unlikely. Before its inception, resulting from the 1947 National Security Act, the CIA had already been promoted in three 1946 films, including OSS, which the script read, we need a central intelligence agency promoting this idea before the CIA even existed. Further, at the 1943 memo from OSS made clear the value held by the state in what is encouraged be seen as more entertainment. Films, according to the menu, are among the most powerful propaganda weapons at the disposal of the United States and a potent force an attitude formation that can be employed on most of the major psychological warfare fronts, including the domestic, civilian, and military population. What in the hell? (laughs) And I read, one function directed domestically to Black America was to promote an illusion of inclusion, a tactic suited perfectly to Johnson, the black commercial class, and to the concept of buying power. As explained by the CIA, one report dated January 24, 1953, concentrated on the problem of black stereotyping in Hollywood under the heading Negroes in Pictures. Also reported that he has secured the agreement of several casting directors to plant well-dressed Negroes as part of the American scene without appearing too conspicuous or deliberate. Oh, Lord have mercy. And I read, it will consequently show plantation Negroes. However, this is being set off to a certain degree by planning a dignified Negro butler in one of the principal's homes and by giving him dialogue indicating he is a free man can work where he likes. Also reported that some Negroes will be planted in the crowd scenes. In the comedy film Caddy starring Jerry Lewis, at a time when many Negroes had as much chance of getting into a golf club as they had of getting the vote, this seemed optimistic indeed. Jesus. (coughs) Excuse me. I apologize for the cough, ladies and gentlemen. And I read... Johnson's selling the Negro was a perfect domestic fit and performed the precise function desired by all manner of U.S. leadership at the time. (laughs) What Johnson provided was a perfect vessel through which commercial and government interests could similarly distribute and profit from an image of an open, free, inclusive, democratic capitalist society ready to lead the world. In the decades following World War II, there would be both a rise and eventual decline of labor movement strength, coupled with advances of new and ever more pervasive television and radio media technology expanding into households and vehicles everywhere, allowing for more to be reached by even more messaging. Embedded in these ubiquitous messages 
were inducements to spend more and to develop more and more credit, which by the 1970s was replacing real wage increases for workers as a way to allow people to constitute shopping without actually being paid higher salaries. For black consumers, messaging targeted consumption and name brands as status now after long last finally available. But quite unlike any other community, black targeted encouragements to spend took on a decidedly political connotations and would continue to be redefined as genuine power. The heavily promoted amounts of spending evolved with an intended claim that these collective expenditures expenditures would be equated to a potential freedom similar to that found among individual private wealth or managed national federal budgets. In other words, the concept of buying power, excuse me, (coughs) man, the concept of buying power initially developed to help the federal government manage social unrest created by an inequity. What a time to get a tickle in your throat, huh? Lord. Wow. I apologize again. My allergies are kicking my behind. And I read. In other words, the concept of buying power initially developed to help the federal government manage social unrest created by an inequality between labor and ownerships by literally keeping the gap smaller between what workers owned and the cost of what they could buy would become, especially when directed at Black America, a mythologized claim that all that is spent by Black people on goods and services could be used differently to lift them up out of inequality and into genuine power. Buying power would be made fully synonymous with political power. And that's really, really, really crucial for us to grasp. Because many equate it with political power, that we would just come together and buy up the block and support black businesses and all of these sort of things that are good in and of itself, but none of them produce political buying political power. And I read. Buying power would also become a crucial part of the mechanism of managing black rage and potential uprise in the years following release of Johnson's marketing product. Relative advances in the national economy after World War II allowed for more black women and men to find work, particularly as many moved north or moved south to north in another wave of the Great Migration. These new urban centers of black life provided a sense of of there being a localized economy and to some the appearance of an eternally held separate black economy which one which could be marshaled to benefit the community or at least a relatively elite segment 
Black print journalism expanded and black radio emerged as a new dominant media force within black America, all of which aided the construction of a genuine sense of separateness. Of course, these these medias were mere supplementary agents themselves. The forced physical displacement of entire black communities and the creation of segregated worlds is what imposed an initial sense of an imperial power of an internally circulating black power. However, disconnected from any meaningful participation in the broader economy, those black dollars could not become capital and thus could not expand. Without expansion, as capital investment with returning profits, those smaller amounts of black dollars circulating among other mostly poor black people would never, have never, can never generate wealth. I'm going to read that again. Without expansion as capital investment with returning profits, those small amounts of black dollars circulating among other mostly poor black people would never, have never, can never generate wealth. But unlike dollars, which lose strength when circulating only within one community, myths and heavy circulation, as is the case with buying power, gain strength exponentially. By the early 1960s, the commercial mainstream press in the United States, the Wall Street Journal, Business Week, the New York Herald Tribune, etc., would all be extolling the virtues of increasing black buying power that could specifically be called upon as a method of moving discussion of black inequality away from militants and more towards moderate civil rights concerns for black employment, positive media representation, and access to mainstream politics. I laugh because it's the same thing that's still taking place. Same thing. As Stacey Kenlock Sewell explains, a presumably new Negro market had emerged according to management, retail, and advertising literature. With an annual purchasing power of $20 billion, almost equal of that too of Canada, and this meant there was no longer a need nor an ability to refuse employment to black workers because their presence would what? Father enticed black consumerism from an increasingly unthreatening community. Not only was welcoming buying power good for the calm of the country, it was good business. And importantly, consumption was further concrete as liberating. Their democratizing potential of consumer culture was not lost on one market researcher. Who, who concluded that the purchase of quality items represented one of the reads leading to what African-American regards as his rightful place in society. Spending money is a direct weapon for achieving Negro rights. What in the world? Once an increasingly emboldened black liberation movement took more of the national political center stage, the corporate world saw as one response greater inducements. And so it was that after the beginning of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, economic conditions of minority consumers became a concern in American society. And marketers were under much pressure to consider 
integrated advertising and to develop a new measure of responsibility for marketing. And I read, the marketing was successful. The NAACP, the Congress for Racial Equality, CORE, the National Urban League, would even with their own political disagreements, all champion and still variations of the claim of buying power to drive up advertising dollars spent in black media, encourage white corporations to hire black employees, and to promote their own political definitions of black power and progress over those of more radical or to their political left. But those more militant organizations would also adopt their own politics to the same buying power methodology. But unlike previous use of the concept by the 1960s, buying power was increasingly being promoted. A more commercial black press itself supported by increasingly penetrative media technology. And no leader before or since has ever made better use of or more welcomed by a national media than Malcolm X, who, as one of the most popular black nationalists in history, still has his references to buying power reverberated in black media and public spheres. And we're going to stop right there, ladies and gentlemen. This is a great place to end. I hope you guys are beginning to see how using buying power, the myth intentionally was used to squell or keep and keep down unrest. I just I'm I'm blown away but anyway ladies and gentlemen again I want to thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of the Patreon Podcast this is your host Elgin Bailey I can't wait to talk to you guys soon take care